This episode of Let's Talk About Chef is being brought to you by the New York Times. I have spent several episodes telling you why I think you should subscribe to the New York Times for a dollar a week or four dollars a month. I have tried to make you laugh. I have tried to make you think and understand that getting your news from untrustworthy sources is frankly dangerous and a waste of your time. And so I'm done. I am not going to tell you that getting your news from Facebook is not unlike getting your news from a third grader. That social media algorithms make it so that you can see fake news and fake stories so that you will click on them and then that company will get paid. For example, a popular fake news article that was circulating Facebook was one stating that Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez proposed to make a ban on motorcycles. She didn't. Or another one said that Joe Biden, after he was elected, called Trump supporters the dregs of society, which is also not true. Or another stated that New York City coroner that declared the death of Jeffrey Epstein a suicide was given half a million dollars by the Clinton Foundation for his diagnosis, which is also not true. Or my personal favorite, from America's dad and Santa Claus himself, Tim Allen, that Trump's border wall would cost less than the Obamacare website, which is also not true. Tim Allen's kind of lit us all down lately. The internet is filled with fake stories and fake news that is meant to get you mad so that you click on it. So why would you not, for a dollar a week, trust the New York Times to tell you what's actually going on? Head on over to nytimes.com to get started. Right now, businesses are closing at an alarming rate. Institutions that have been around seemingly forever are shutting their doors because of COVID. Now, regardless of your thoughts or beliefs on how politicians are handling this situation, it's really besides the point. Nobody seems to have any answers and no one seems to really know what to do. But just when it seems bleak and unbearable and somewhat of a nightmare, there is news that in North America alone, over 4 million new businesses were registered in 2020. That's the most ever in one year. You have to think to yourself, why? With economies on the verge of collapse and politicians acting like autocrats, who in their right minds would open a business right now? And yet, people are. The entrepreneurial spirit has grown because of COVID-19. People are wanting to have small businesses to support instead of large big box stores. I myself started a new business during covid Tim and I opened Finer Things Market in Bayfield, Ontario because we saw an opportunity to provide the best food and products we could find to our community. And it's been great. Right now, there are businesses that have opened out of necessity that will become the next Chipotle, the next Rancher's Choice, or the next McDonald's. They have started in the toughest year ever to start a business. In 10 years, five years from now, we will be hearing stories of origins that will be spectacular. And so, in that optimistic light, today on Let's Talk About Chef, we're going to look into some of the most amazing stories of how some of our most loved food businesses started. This episode, it's all about origin stories.
Chipotle did not start out as a burrito empire. It did not start out to be worth around $20 billion and create the fast casual trend that took over the dining landscape for the last decade. It began because one cook named Steve Ellis was hungry while in the Mission District of San Francisco. Steve wanted to be a Michelin-starred chef. That was his goal and his dream. And as a young man, he was working in San Francisco at the restaurant Stars for the incredible chef Jeremiah Towers. Stars, if you don't know, was the most famous restaurant of the 90s in North America. Towers was a chef who demanded perfection, and the young Steve Ellis was learning how to work in a Michelin-starred restaurant so that he could one day open up his own. On a rare day off, Steve was wandering the Mission District with a friend who suggested they eat burritos. Steve was from Colorado and had virtually no experience eating burritos because in the early 90s they were pretty much limited to Spanish neighborhoods. So he and his friends sat in a burrito shop with an open kitchen and counter filled with beans and rice and toppings. They got their foil wrap burritos and Steve unfolded the foil around his and was instantly blown away by all of the flavors. As he sat there that day eating with his friend, he began to look around the small shop they were in and his brain, having been hardwired to the world of fine dining and food costs and percentages, started to watch the economics of what he was seeing. There were a few people behind the counter. That was it. One seemed to be in the back making prep, another was making burritos to the customer's specifications, and the other was cashing them out. That was it. And so he sat there and watched the three workers feeding a never-ending line of people at five bucks a pop for a burrito, and he saw that this place, this business, could make money. There was low overhead, there was low labor costs, and if they only sold six burritos an hour, they would cover the cost of the labor. And as he sat there eating, they were selling dozens of them. Suddenly, an idea formed in his head that if he were able to open a small burrito place, even though he knew nothing about burritos, he could probably make enough money eventually to finance a fine dining restaurant, and he could live out his dream of being a Michelin-starred chef. And so with that, Steve moved back to Colorado to open what would become the first Chipotle. Now, the idea to open in Colorado was an easy one for him. He knew that there were no burritos there. And so after looking around at available real estate and borrowing some money from his father, he ended up signing the lease for a space near the University of Colorado in Boulder. Now, you've probably been inside a Chipotle, so you understand what they all look like. But getting to those details, every single tiny detail was all that Steve thought about for months as he built the space. From the steel on the tabletops to the open kitchen so you could see the food being made, to sourcing the best possible meat he could find for the ingredients, and even down to the menu only being four items long. You could only get a bowl, a burrito, a salad, or tacos. That's it. And that simple concept of a small menu came from an article that Steve had read that suggested that human beings get stressed out when they are given too many options. Think about it. How many times back in the day before COVID were you sitting in a restaurant or a drive through window with dozens of dishes and options in front of you and you had to panic choose something at the last minute when the server came up? By only having four options, ordering was casual and it gave the illusion that everything on the menu was fantastic. Now, a limited menu and nice furnishings does not mean that you are going to have a successful restaurant. And that's where Steve's talents as a chef trained in Michelin-starred kitchens came in. He spent a long time developing the recipes for Chipotle, using the best ingredients and making sure that freshness was the most important thing. Still to this day, 
Chipotle's peel avocados cook the rice and beans and braise the meats low and slow to make the best tasting product that they can. By opening day of his first location, Steve was ready, working in his kitchen with a few friends as staff at the counter, and people were loving it. On his opening day, even though it wasn't a barn buster, he still covered all of his costs and made a little bit of profit. After a week, lines had started forming about this new crazy food called a burrito, and they were waiting for the door to open. And then a reviewer for the Boulder newspaper came in and wrote a rave review about this new style of restaurant. The day the review came out, the lines were so long that they sold out of food within the first few hours. Steve had done it. Against all odds, he had created a calculated and controlled and delicious concept. Within a few months, he was able to pay his father back the money he'd invested in him. A second location of Chipotle opened a year later, and a few months after that, a third. All in Boulder. And this was the point where Steve had set his idea for funding a fine dining restaurant on the back burner and decided to grow his business, his burrito business himself. Of course, he got offers to franchise the business, and after getting a huge investment from McDonald's in his company, which at the time seemed like a smart idea, but quickly soured because McDonald's wanted to do what they do best, serve crappy ingredients for a premium in price, so Steve bought all his shares back from McDonald's at a huge loss and expanded his business even further. Today, Chipotle has 2,622 locations that are all owned by Steve and his board privately. They make around $5 billion a year and they have 65,000 employees. This company that is worth around $21 billion was started by one chef, one line cook, who saw through the cracks of how a traditional restaurant should run and figured out how to make delicious food and also make money without sacrificing taste or quality. Now, Steve will be the first one to tell you that he never expected the company to grow into what it has become. But sitting in that burrito bar in the Mission District of San Francisco and studying what he saw in front of him, mixed with his Michelin star restaurant training, resulted in one of the most successful ideas of this century. How's that for an origin story? Hey guys, it's Brian. If you like podcasts and you love podcasts, and chances are that you do, and you've always thought that you wanted to make your own, you can by using Buzzsprout. Buzzsprout is the fastest, easiest, simplest way to get your podcast on the air. Just go to buzzsprout.com, tell them that Let's Talk About Chef sent you, and you'll be able to check your analytics, see where people are listening to you from around the world. They'll help you with monetization, with ads, Anything you can think of, Buzzsprout has already thought of, and it's the easiest way to do it. Again, go to buzzsprout.com and tell them, let's talk about Chef sent you there. I would be willing to bet a lot of money that you have eaten instant ramen at one point in your life. Now, I'm not talking about real ramen, the delicious soup served in huge bowls with ingredients that have been lovingly prepared in broth that's been cooked for hours. I'm talking about the 30 cent packet of freeze dried noodles with the little pouch of seasoning that you pour boiled water over. 
Instant ramen was not created because of some insane desire to eat freeze-dried noodles. It did not become the food that 290 million people a day consume. It was created out of necessity, because Japan after World War II was starving and people were dying. Enter Momofuku Ando, the creator of instant ramen and yes, the namesake of the Momofuku brand of restaurants. Ando was 48 years old when the food shortages in Japan caused him to decide to create a cheap noodle to save his fellow countrymen. The U.S., after winning the war in the 40s, had started to bring in wheat from the USA in hopes that the Japanese would make bread with it, because the Japanese were facing the worst food shortages they had seen in decades. People were starving, and lines would form at outdoor noodle carts in hopes of being able to eat. Black markets were formed where people could buy vegetables and meat and things like ramen and gyoza were being made from all of the excess wheat flour because the Japanese didn't eat bread and didn't want to make bread, they wanted to eat noodles. And Ando was curious as to why the government was trying to force people to make bread and not make noodles, which were much more common in Japan. He was quoted as saying, if you change your diet, you are in effect throwing away your traditions and cultural heritage. I believed that to adapt to a bread diet was tantamount to adopting Western culture. Momofuku Ando realized that a ramen noodle was, that was more accessible and easier to prepare could solve the food problem that so many Japanese people were suffering from. And after trying to gain support for his idea, he was told to go ahead and do it himself. And so with not knowing anything about noodles or noodle production, he did. Ando spent the next year trying to figure out different ideas with the wheat flour, until he stumbled upon his breakthrough while watching his wife make tempura. He realized that frying the noodles was the secret, because when you fried the noodles, it extracted the moisture in the noodle, meaning that they could be stored for long periods of time. It also meant that you could rehydrate the noodles with hot water. And so, that's why you have the dried noodle brick in the plastic wrapper in your grocery store. In 1958, Ando released his first packages of chicken ramen and changed his company's name to Nissin. He set up a sales booth in Tokyo to let people try his instant noodles, which at the time cost more than five times the price of buying fresh noodles from a street vendor. But people were able to store them in their cupboards for when they needed to eat them, and they became somewhat of an overnight sensation. Over a decade had passed since the end of World War II, and people were starting to work long hours again in Japan, and there was a massive surplus of wheat flour from America for Ando to make his noodles from, which resulted in his company and his instant noodles to become extremely popular. His chicken ramen sold 13 million packages in its first year of production, and within 10 years that number would be in the billion of packages sold every year in Japan. By 1968, Instant Ramen was estimated to sell around 3.5 billion servings a year. But Ando wasn't done there. In 1971, he invented the cup of noodles, and sales skyrocketed again. Cup of noodles was so popular that the company couldn't keep up with demand, even though they were making around 650,000 cups a day. And by 1989, noodles in a cup completely outsold packaged noodles. Ando, by 1998, was 88 years old and still making new versions of his noodles. And today, China is the world's largest market for instant noodles with around 40 billion servings a year eaten in the country alone. And in South Korea, the average person eats about 75 servings a year of instant noodles. 
Momofuku Ando didn't make his noodles to become successful. He made his noodles to try and help his fellow countrymen who were starving. And sometimes necessity breeds invention. And instant noodles are the perfect example of an idea that was created to help others, and then went on to take over the world. Today, instant noodles in the USA sell around 4.5 billion servings a year, and globally that number is around 100 billion servings every single year. And Nissan, the company that Ando founded, made around $4.3 billion last year. And that number will have gone up even higher this year thanks to everyone being locked down. And that is a lot of ramen. Mmm, that looks good, Corey. How many noodles do you think are in that bowl of top ramen noodle soup? I want to tell you something. You count noodles, okay? And I'll eat. Okay. Most people are like Corey. They love eating all those noodles and top ramen. What you'll love is that you can serve your family in three minutes and for just pennies. Well, Corey, how'd it taste? It's fine. Top Ramen Oriental Noodle Soup. The mostly noodle noodle soup from Nation Foods. Origins of food can be really fascinating stories. Of course, we have talked about two huge companies and how they started, but even the histories of food items can have weird beginnings. Take the bagel and why it has a hole in the middle. It's said that the hole in the middle of the bagel is to cut down baking time. But in reality, we have to go to a small settlement village close to the Polish border with Ukraine, where a long time ago, the Tsar was extremely demanding and forced the people to pay a bread tax to him of one-tenth of every loaf of bread baked in the village. Now, the royal portion was taken from the middle of the loaf because that had the least amount of crust. So bakers decided to stick it to the royal guards and they started to make small round loaves of bread with holes in the middle where the royal portion was supposed to come from. When the royal guards came to collect the bread and saw that the hole was in the middle, they went back to the czar empty-handed. Potato chips were invented at the Moon Bakehouse in Saratoga. One customer kept sending back his fried potatoes or french fries to the kitchen because he claimed that they were too thick to eat. And every time the potatoes came back to the chef, who was named George Crumb, he would slice a potato a little bit thinner each time before sending them back out to the customer, who would immediately send them back, claiming that they were too thick. Finally, reaching his breaking point, the chef sliced the potatoes paper thin, fried them in oil, and dumped a bunch of salt on them, and the customer loved them, and that's where potato chips come from. Finally, we get to the sandwich. John William Montague, the fourth Earl of Sandwich, which is a town in Kent in England back in the 1700s, was addicted to gambling. He would spend hours every day playing cards, and because he never wanted to leave the table, he usually had his food served to him there. One day he asked for roast beef to be delivered to him while he played poker, and not wanting to mess up his playing cards with fat and meat, he placed the roast beef between two pieces of bread so that he could eat one-handed and gamble with the other. Origin stories are amazing. They have the power to remind us that something as globally powerful as instant ramen or a sandwich can be created out of necessity. Like I said at the beginning of the show, people are starting companies every day, and right now, today, somebody has started a company to sell something that they believe the world needs. Maybe COVID caused them to lose their job. Maybe they just think the world will appreciate their invention. But the idea behind necessity economics is that you can be sure that several companies that have been formed in the last year, 
that started because COVID-19 stopped the world and they didn't have any other option. Those companies will live on to have one absolutely amazing origin story. I hope that you enjoyed this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef. It was written by me, Brian Clark. I want to thank everyone who has written in over our unscheduled and thanks to COVID somewhat forced break over the last few months. But I'm here to say that we are back and I'm looking forward to making as many episodes as I can. I want to thank the New York Times and Buzzsprout for letting me talk about them this week. And I hope that wherever you are in the world, you are safe and happy. And as always, I am Brian Clark. Have a great service and have a great week. Our life together is so precious Together we have grown We have grown Although our love is still special Let's take a chance and fly away Somewhere alone It's been too long since we took the time No one's to blame My no time flies so quickly But when I see you, darling It's like we both are falling in love Again, it'll be like starting over Starting over Every day we used to make it love Why can't we be making love nice and easy It's time to spread our wings and fly Take us.